Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. I'm Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. And uh, we apologize for that technical problem. But on today's show, a Department of Corrections initiative teaches incarcerated people in Mississippi how to weld. Then a newly founded state legislative caucus focuses on first responders. And we check in on the economic outlook for the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi's Department of Corrections has debuted a mobile welding training center designed to help incarcerated people in the state learn how to weld. The center is comprised of a 53-foot trailer subdivided into eight welding simulators. Each 90 days, it will rotate between Mississippi's state prisons. The program is first open to women housed at Central Mississippi Correctional Facility. Women like Brittany Waddell, who spoke with our Kobe Vance at a rollout event Friday. This right here is like us being able to put a strong foot towards when we are able to make parole and release and it gives us a good outlook on the world now because how they're helping us be able to be productive citizens when we get out. You know, what does that mean to you to be able to be at the forefront of this you know, movement to educate incarcerated people here in Mississippi? This is an awesome opportunity to be able to be a part of. It is um, They've been talking about many things that they're going to bring to us, classes like welding and electrician and plumbing and all that, and we're very excited about it. Uh, have you had experience with welding in the past? Never. Are you excited? Are you nervous? I'm very excited. These right here, they're awesome, and I'm glad we have the opportunity to be the first ones to be able to use them. What's the experience like uh, getting to use this equipment? It's, it's amazing. It's, it's all virtual reality stuff, so it's something totally different than we've ever done here before. You know, when you do uh, get out, what are your thoughts? Or do you think this is going to be able to set you up for getting a better job? One thing that they said they were going to help us do is by the time we get done with this class, we're going to be able to be employed before we even leave prison. So that's one great thing about less things we have to worry about when we get out is looking for a job and having to worry about our background, keeping us from being able to be productive in life. Burl Kane is Mississippi's Department of Corrections Commissioner. When you're released from prison, you should have a way to make a living and have a job 
and be trained as far as how to balance your checkbook, how to have the, get your driver's license and everything you need so we just don't turn you out and your revolving door and come right back. We, we're to correct deviant behavior, what correction means, but we're also to prepare you for to re-enter into society, and you can't re-enter broke. So you've got to be able to have a job, and this equips them with high-skilled jobs so that they are very employable, so therefore they get past the stigma of being an ex-convict. So you, you may not get a job sweeping a floor, but you'll get a job being a certified welder like you see here. And that's what this is all about is create skills and trades that make inmates employable. Welding is a pretty high-wage job. What do you think that can mean for the state's reentry, at least keeping people from having to be reincarcerated? Well, there's two things it means. It means they don't have to bring people maybe from Puerto Rico and so forth to Ingalls because we have citizens in Mississippi that need to have those jobs and pay taxes here and not be breaking the law. And so that's what we're really about doing is equipping our people to have these jobs and not to take jobs from other people, but there's a shortage of welder jobs. There's a shortage of jobs in most all skills and trades, and we want to fill that shortage from prison. And then if we have them in a the job, they're not going to hurt you and come back. So it's about less victims of violent crime. This is what correction should do and should be about, and that's what the governor expected us to do, and that's what he hired me to do because we did all these kind of programs before where I was where we had all these reentry programs, and we, we reduced the violence and the prison as well. So our prisons are safer places because of this kind of programs because they're busy doing this rather than causing corrupt you know, and violence in the prison. So it's just keeping being busy in a positive manner, not a negative manner. Recently, Mississippi executed an a inmate that was on death row. Uh, do you think there's potential for future executions in the state? I think there's a future for whatever the law. We just keep the keys. We don't make the law, and we don't sentence people to whatever. We just keep the keys. So whatever happened, you know, they may be one, they may not. I don't know. Also, recently, there was a... Uh, there was a situation at a private prison here in the state that required a officer at that prison to be uh, detained because of because of their link to an inmate dying, an inmate being killed. I was wondering, what was your reaction to that? My reaction is I don't have inmates die and, and be killed. Don't have gangs in our prison. And we worked really hard to get the gangs out of our prison. And one thing we did is the pro board worked really well with us to not parole people who are in gangs. And so that's going strong. So if you're in a gang, we're not going to send you back to the street to, to corrupt and, and, and violate the public and cause them to blues. So we're going to keep you. So that's one thing we've done, and that's what you have over there. So people don't want to be in a gang anymore if they have a parole date. So that's working. And so the other thing is I don't sign on release time. You don't get double good time if you're in a gang. I'm not going to let you out. So we're going to keep you in prison if you're in a gang. That's where you ought to be. That's where you're going to stay. And we're going to protect the public, and that's what it's all about. So the gang's got to go. That's Mississippi Department of Corrections Commissioner Burl Kane. Coming up, a newly founded state legislative caucus focuses on first responders. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. 
Mississippi's Department of Health reported a total of more than 900 new cases of COVID-19 Friday. That one-day case count is the highest the state's seen in months. Dr. Paul Byers is the state epidemiologist. We are starting to see some increases in, in COVID in Mississippi. It's kind of a slow burn. I think we're in a unique opportunity right now where we know that there are some things that work. And one of the things that's really looking pretty evident is that the best protection, especially is if you have an opportunity to get that booster dose. The virus uptick comes as the U- as the United States as a whole sees a surge in infections from the Omicron variant of COVID-19. According to the CDC, Omicron may spread more easily than previous strands of the disease. Strains, that is, including the Delta variant. It remains unclear whether Omicron is more or less deadly than any other variant. Mississippi detected its first case of Omicron about a week and a half ago. The Mississippi Legislative First Responders Caucus launched earlier this week. The caucus is a collaboration between state lawmakers on one side and firefighters, law enforcement, and EMTs on the other. It aims to, quote, foster an open and transparent reciprocal dialogue between the first responders and legislators. That's per a press release issued Tuesday. Robert Johnson is a Democratic state representative from Natchez and a founding member of the caucus. He speaks with our Kobe Vance. I got a call from uh, some people who were interested in doing it. And uh, the primary selling point for me is that uh, I, I don't think we do enough for first responders, especially policemen and firemen. Uh, they are people who have had to be at work throughout this pandemic. And we haven't done anything to shore up their, uh, their pay, to, to increase it, to increase benefits, to increase more training. And we've been needing to do that for quite some time. And uh, I looked at this as possibly a, a opportunity to coalesce with a group of legislators and try to put together a organized effort to try to, to, to provide some of that support. What are some of the uh, caucus's goals for law enforcement officers? Again, it's, it's a first glance joining for me in the sense that uh, when they say police officers and firemen and, and and those people first respond. I wanted to do what I, and I've always wanted to do what I could to help. So when I when I'm speaking about what are some of the goals, I'd like to see more extensive training and and, and cultural uh, uh, integration and uh, uh, social uh, appropriateness and th- those kind of things of how to deal with people. I think we could invest more in that. Uh, I I think we ought to require a little bit of more of education level and training for officers. But in keeping with that, I also think uh, we should uh, dr- uh, dramatically increase their pay across the board uh, because they deserve it. And, and look, it's not to say that I think the majority of our officers and uh, firemen and first responders are, are well trained. I just think uh, given some of the, our challenges lately that, that we clearly see that there are more things that need to be done. But in keeping with giving them more training and, and, and raising their requirements, we also have to pay them better and give them better benefits. There's been a growing conversation nationally uh, about training officers to accomplish jobs that are multifaceted, whether it be you know responding to uh, disasters, whether it be responding to crisis situations, or increasingly mental health uh, issues. 
you know, where do you think the training comes in to address those issues? You know, the mental health uh, deal is a, is a big deal, but you know, we 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 have to do uh, an extensive overhaul of our mental health system and increase the funding for that. And I say all this not as a pie in the sky type idea. We have the money, we have the resources. We just have to put them to the right use. And so uh, that, that's it, you have to integrate that into I mean into a grossly deficient uh, mental health uh, infrastructure that we have anyway. But we certainly, as we began to shore up our mental health infrastructure, part of that has to integrate training in it for officers and firemen and, and first responders. When it comes to training for, uh, for for firemen, what would you like to see there? With firemen, it's the same thing in terms of the mental health. Because so, they come in contact with people every day almost as much or more than, than uh, police officers. So they have to be prepared uh, to deal with people in all kinds of situations. But again, the biggest issue is that I just don't think Given the the what they have to deal with and the uh, their lives being on the line every day, that we compensate them in a way that reflects difficulty of their job. Do you think raising compensation will help for shortages in careers? I know there's I also a shortage in uh, EMTs right now for people who are responding yeah. for uh, ambulances. Look, the, the job has gotten tougher. The stress has gotten more, and I think if you pay people more, that they would. Uh, you'd have more people getting involved. I think there are a lot of people who would love to be in that field right now, but they, they're seeking jobs, other, other places that pay, that makes a decent, a, a better salary. I mean, we, we got a workforce that's bar- that, that barely making it because so much of their, their income is, is committed to healthcare and other benefits that they have to do. And so it makes sense that we should, uh, that sometimes they choose to go in a different direction because they just, they have a family. To take care. So we would make it more, attractive for more people if we did that yes and we would retain more people do you think addressing training for police officers will help address the crime rates in the city of jackson or other areas across the state that have high crime rates well i don't think it's training by itself i think it's training compensation get more people involved and you hire more officers we definitely need more officers working in jackson and a lot of other places but in jackson in, in all our urban areas we need more feet on the ground in terms of uh, police officers I think that would be a, a bigger deterrent than passing laws to find more ways to lock people up. We just need more officers at work. What do you think all these changes we've talked about could mean for the average Mississippian? Uh, a safer uh, community, a, a a reassured populace that knows that the people that there there are enough people and enough committed people helping to take care of them. They they, they have all the confidence in the world in our first responder uh, force that we have now. But I think it would make everybody feel so much better if they uh, and feel more confident about their everyday lives if they knew that these officers and these first responders had uh, more help and had more support. Robert Johnson is a Democratic state representative from Natchez. Coming up, we check in on the economic outlook for the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app.
fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic has rattled business communities throughout the state. The Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians, who count on casino and tourism revenue as key drivers of economic growth, have been especially vulnerable to pandemic-related disruptions. John Hendricks is Director of Economic Development for the Choctaws. He says the tribe is exploring a new way to generate income by cashing in on thousands of acres of wild forest. This is a project that's been coming together over the last um, three or four years, actually. So Mississippi Choctaw, uh, the Indian Reservation, includes about 35,000 acres of uh, federal trust lands, and we have about 27,000 acres of land that is um, forested. And so my my role with the tribe is the director of economic development. So we're always looking for new opportunities um, to to provide additional revenue for the tribal government or or employment opportunities for the community. And so we became aware of the carbon offset market. And the more homework we did, the more we felt like it was a good fit for for our community and the and the resources that we have. So. We did a lot of due diligence. We looked at a lot of different companies, and we ended up um, deciding to, to partner with the Indian Land Tenure Foundation to develop a, a carbon offset project for about 25,000 acres of tribal forested lands. How does this work? How do you earn money off of this? Greenhouse gas emissions um, are one of the viewed as one of the primary contributors to global warming. And one of the ways to combat that is to sequester carbon emissions. And so trees are, are, do it, are able to do that naturally. So you, if you're growing trees and you go through the process to register your um, – the, the, those trees are sequestering carbon, and you can actually create carbon credits, and those credits can be sold. You can sell the title to those credits. So in the United States, there are two different markets. One is the a compliance, kind of a mandatory market, which exists in California. Um, so if there are companies in California that are emitting more um, greenhouse gases than they are allowed to do, they have to purchase credits. There's another market, uh, established market, called the voluntary market. So those are for companies that are um, just environmentally conscious, maybe an ESG-focused company, and they want to, to buy credits to offset any um, carbons or greenhouse gases that they're emitting, and maybe they want to be carbon neutral so they can um, purchase credits to, to um, offset anything that they're doing that's not environmentally friendly. So once we have done our forced um, inventory, we can determine how many carbon credits we have, and then we go through the process of finding the right partners that want to purchase those credits from us. So the company is paying you to continue to grow forestry. Correct. We're going to follow what's called an approved forest management plan. So it would be, um, we would commit to sustainable practices and and the, the technical term is called addition, additionality. So we're committing to, um, to sequestering more carbon um, than, than is than we normally would. So it's a long-term, it's a, again, it's a 40-year commitment. And when you talk about carbon, are you talking about it in the sense that you won't be cutting down as many trees? Yes, we're actually committing to maintain our forests at or above our current base inventory stock. So we're going to let the tree, I mean, grow more trees and grow them 
for longer periods, and those trees in turn capture greenhouse gases and sequester them, so carbon sequestration. And so we're committing to, to the, again, maintaining our forest at or above current stock that gets the additionality, so we're, we're sequestering more carbon and we're committing to the sustainable forest management practices in an environmentally friendly way and for, for a 40-year period. Is this a relatively new approach to trying to find a way to reduce global warming? Um, there has been a, a lot of, um, I think it's more than 10 years old. The um, California market, um, I believe, is, was established more than 10 years ago. The, the program that we're participating in is a voluntary market, but the, 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 the original term you may have heard was cap and trade. It was in the 2016 um, Paris Accords as a favorable way to offset um, climate impacts. So this has been around for more than a decade. Um, but we, we, over the last few years, we've we've uh, decided that the voluntary market is a better fit for for our community. Does that have anything the volunteer market to do with government? Somewhat. The, the California market is a um, it's a state run program by the California Air Resources Board, and the tribe is a sovereign nation. And so, if we were to to decide to go into the California market. We would have to waive sovereign immunity, which is a a right that tribal governments have, and um, the tribe does not like to do that. So um, the voluntary market does not require the tribe to waive sovereign immunity. So it was a better fit for our tribal government um, policymaking. How much of an impact do you think this program will have? I guess there's a few impacts that we're um, interested in. So one is the the long-term commitment to preserve the the tribe's forest um, assets and to, to grow them sustainably in an environmentally friendly way. Uh, the other is that we are um, intending to create a new source of revenue. So it's an economic development through an environmentally um, sustainable practice. So we, we hope that that would generate millions of dollars over the 40-year period that support the, the tribe. And then the, the third would be that what could we do with those funds? So we're, we're in the process of um, um, the, the tribe has, again, 35,000 acres. There's 11,000 members of, of the Mississippi Choctaw community. And so we're always um, investing in new infrastructure and affordable housing development and broadband initiatives and college scholarship programs. So, so the, the, the primary impact for the community is going to be the reinvestment of the funds into new community services. John Hendricks is Director of Economic Development for the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians. We'll hear more from him on tomorrow's show. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.